Requesting connection. Established. Encrypted. We're live. The show you've been asking for. Advice, technology, and community. Linux first, all others second. This is Ask Noah. Live from Speed Technologies, the Ask Noah show starts right now. This is the show where we came to do all the things on Linux they said couldn't be done and take your questions on how to do the same. The phone lines are open this hour to be a part of the program. It is a free call, 1-855-450-NOAH. That's 1-855-450-6624 or send an email to live at asknoahshow.com. My name is Noah Chalai. I am your host. Delighted to be here with you as another episode of the Ask Noah Show kicks off this hour. Joining me is my co-host, Mr. Steve Ovens. Welcome in, sir. The sun is shining and Labor Day comes, so uh, everything's green on my boards. You know, are, do you do anything when, you know, when you have a holiday being is that you and your wife, well, I guess not so much anymore, but you guys for a long time didn't leave your house a whole lot. So when you get to holiday stuff, does it change much or is it just like now I don't go into the room and work? I go into the room and play. Now I go outside and do work in the yard while the weather is nice. So I've got a multi, I, I would say a multi-year ref- reformation project going on on the acre or so of my uh, property. So it's a lot of uh, boring stuff, but you know what? I put on my Audible playlist and I just kind of go to work and I enjoy listening to audiobooks while doing manual labor. Now, is this all weather-related stuff that destroyed the thing, or is this a thing that uh, over time you've just decided I want to change this, that, or the other? Uh, no, it's been the the people who had the property previously, they basically didn't do much cleanup, and they just pushed it to – they pushed all of the debris to piles around the – like they basically made a palisade around my property for some reason – and so I'm slowly tearing that down and we're putting in a chicken coop and I'm building stairs down into the ravine and there's lots of stuff going on. Okay. So this might be a stupid question. But I'm asking anyway, are you going to have chickens? Yes. That's usually what you have what, when you're building a chicken. Coop. Why I said it was a prefaced with yeah. it, I said it was a stupid question, but like, I just, you know, I, uh, chickens. Okay. Yeah. You know, they make eggs. They do do that. They make eggs. <laughs> All right. Well, uh, let's head into our feedback segment. We'll start out with Steven. Steven writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. I've recently started to listening to your show, and I absolutely love it. I look forward to it every week now. I have a question regarding securely wiping... Uh, securely wiping mechanical hard drives to resell or dispose of them. I've used tools like DBAN in the past... But I haven't done this in a long time, and I was curious if there was another open source solution or built-in tools in Linux that I could use instead. Thanks for a great show, Stephen. So I, I'm going to start with this. Steve, do you – when you go to destroy – or when you go to get rid of a drive, um, the, the way I'm going to choose to phrase this question is do you have a process for destroying the data or do you just not believe in letting the drive leave your site? Like if it's leaving, it's just going to get destroyed. No, I do, like, I'll run through Shred or things like that. If it's an SSD, uh, it's a lot harder to go ahead and get rid of the data that's on the disk. But generally speaking, uh, I physically destroy the disk. I don't I don't believe in reselling it, so I take a drill and put multiple holes through it. I will literally throw it down flights of stairs to mess with the, <laughs> the heads. Like, I, when I'm done with it, it doesn't look like a hard drive anymore. I actually take... Like I do, I know that anybody who was really motivated just take the platters and whatever, but I'll take the little um, circuit board off so you Mm -hmm. can't actually connect the SATA uh, stuff to it. So like I do a bunch to dismantle a drive before I, before I'm ready to bin it. Okay. So I'm, I'm kind of in the same boat. If I, if I'm getting rid of something, I will either have, uh, take our, our, our drive punch and and punch the drive or um, if it's flash media, so you can't really destroy flash media by burning it because silicon resists high temperature. And as you pointed out, the traditional tools for wiping data are writing it back and forth because wear leveling aren't terribly effective. So I have resorted to a, a bench grinder and I just have a little uh, a grinder that grinding wheel that's in my garage and uh, take the SD cards and hold them with a pair of pliers and feed them into the grinder until there's nothing left but dust. <laughs> Uh, I, I'm a little more gentle 
insofar as I just take a hammer and smash it. Like ah. if if someone is is sufficiently motivated, then they're going to do it anyways. And I'm not really I'm not really fending off that. I'm making myself be the lowest, not the lowest hanging fruit. That's that's good advice. So D band, so far as I understand it, um, is really centered around a utility called D wipe. And D-Wipe, and D-Band really, hasn't been maintained for a number of years. I think their last release is like 2015 or so. So it's been a while. Um, there is a replacement called N-Wipe, um, which the guy wrote precisely because he wanted D-Wipe to be available outside of D-Band. Um, and since that time, a number of different uh, utilities that it, that incorporate N-Wipe have come to light, the most notable being something called Shred OS. And what Shred OS does, so there's part of Magic, there's System Rescue CD, there's Shred OS, and then there's All-in-One System Rescue Toolkit. Um, and all of these have advantages and disadvantages, but what I like about Shred OS is you burn it to a flash drive, you boot into it, and you're able to just destroy drives. Now, they claim this is an effective tool against flash-based media and spinning rust. I would tell you that the security experts that I have spoken to are very wary of flash media for two reasons. One is because of the wear leveling thing. But the other thing is, and more than one security expert has told me this, flash media lies. It lies on where it's storing stuff. It lies, and, and, and you know, and Steve is shaking his head here. So uh, you're, you're nodding in the affirmative. This flash media lies. Yep, it lies. There's, there's no two ways about it. Um, sometimes it lies about how big its sectors are. Sometimes it lies about... Um, how like how much storage it actually has in and that's in relation to wear leveling so i just you just generally don't trust the flash media media you just you destroy it that that's all there is to it i interviewed i I talked to three or four people today as i was putting the show together and i said what do you do for for destruction of drives and i got everything from i smash them with hammers to i but nobody said Oh yeah, I I wipe them and I uh, I follow the NIST standard and then I throw them up on eBay and sell them and let somebody else have have hay out them because they won't be able to get to the data. I, it's, reality is drives are just too cheap. If you care about the data and you're concerned about um you know destroying it, I would probably suggest uh I would probably suggest just destroying the drive. The if you were if you absolutely have to for some reason resell or repurpose a drive, then this, the second thing I would tell you is store all your data with encryption. And you have a better chance of somebody not being able to to break into the data. But like Steve said, you have really motivated attacker and enough resources, you're going to have a hard time. Our second email comes in from Carl. Carl writes in and says, hey, no one, Steve. In the last show, you mentioned that people should just try to rip Blu-rays with MakeMKV. And yes, that works. But what if you want all of the bonus material, menus and everything? Because... Like some, like how some discs are done. I own a few hundred discs and would love to convert them into some less space-taking format, but with everything. As far as I know, MP4 and MKV support multiple video streams, audio streams, and other data, including every piece of menu you could have in the original disc. If I bought all of those bonus materials, I would like to have them accessible, and that's my problem. I didn't find any solution that can convert the DVD or Blu-ray with all of its content to anything aside from an ISO. Sure, I can make an ISO as a pure copy, but Jellyfin doesn't work with ISOs. I'm willing to pay for such an application, even if I can borrow a Mac from a friend if it need be, but I just didn't find anything. Maybe you or some other listeners know of such a tool. I would appreciate this. Thanks for the show, for what you're doing for the community, and helping spread some open source love. Carl. Um, okay. So, let's start here. So, Steve, do you, you rip uh, media, yeah? Yep. And how do you store your media, and why do you store it that way? I rip it to make MKV because I don't usually care too much about having the fancy menus because I anything like that just gets in the way. Um, if there is bonus material, however, make MKV will rip it. You know that anything that is individual, it'll even rip the commercials for you in front of the DVDs because they just happen to rip it to, to individual files. Um, we just don't generally care for any of that kind of. Uh, stuff that's just not our household so it has never been a major concern of ours so i started exactly exactly where uh uh where carl is 
I started where I said, if I paid for this disc and I put the disc in the player and I have an experience and there's all sorts of creative artistic things that go into the DVD menus and stuff like that. And there's all sorts of, again, bonus features and stuff like that that are there. And particularly with things like I bought the James Bond collector edition that has like every all 20 whatever movies. And they have like interviews with the cast and stuff like that. Like I find that stuff really interesting. Then I was working on a project and it took me into a data center for an ISP and they had one of the little red box uh, or not red box, excuse me, the Netflix boxes that sit in the ISP and basically cache all of the media. And I started to think about it, like, how cool is that? And like, how could you do that with open source? And how would you set that up? And I started, well, okay, you probably have like some sort of a storage device. And then you would have like a Jellyfin server. And then you would, that's the thing that you would spin off into all the little ones, right? And then they would have some sort of a local cache that downloads all of the video files and stuff like that. And as I started to think about it, I thought, well, what would they store them in? Because they're not storing them in DVD menus. And then I started thinking, come to think of it, every streaming service under the sun, they have the ads, but nobody wants those. Every, there's, there are no menus. That, that doesn't exist anymore. It hasn't existed since the time of optical discs. It's almost as if there was so much content on these discs and there wasn't a clean way to navigate them with arrows that we had to come up with these cockamamie menus, things that are different on every disc. And then if you're watching something at night, it gets to the end. It goes back to the menu, and then you just listen to that music on repeat. It's obnoxious. So I, I sat down, put a lot of hard thought into it. Eventually, I didn't delete my ISOs. I moved them onto uh, some offline drives and just stored them. But I've just switched over to ripping everything in in Make MKV. And my rationale behind that is, if you look at every major streaming service, if you look at every way that 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 today people in the cloudy world would get their entertainment. They don't have menus. They have, they click on the thing and the movie starts playing. They click on the thing and the TV show starts playing. So why would we not want to replicate that at the house? And I did. And what I got back from my family was, oh, this is way better. Yeah, we click on the movie and the movie just starts. I don't want to go through the menu. I don't want to see the, you know, preview from 14 years or older. Or preview. They, don't, they didn't want it. They didn't care about it. And so. If you want to go that route, I suggest doing an ISO. Then you have literally a bit-for-bit copy of what was on the disc. And Cody can play ISOs, so you won't have, you know, you can't keep your place and all of that. Um, But again, if you're going that route, now you're back to why wouldn't you just want the video files? But if you want all of the ISOs or you want the original discs, I highly recommend just keeping the ISOs. Our third email comes in from Eddie. Eddie writes in and says, Hi, Noah and Steve. Been listening to you since last, and I appreciate the energy you bring to every one of your shows. I am currently completely replacing my front door, and I'm interested in recommendation for smart locks and smart doorbells. I'm pretty sure that I remember some sort of electromatic lock with RFID and a keypad that you mentioned in a previous show. And I'd like to hear more of your thoughts on this, as well as if you don't like or recommend smart locks or smart doorbells. Thanks in advance, Eddie. So, Steve, I want to start with you. What is the traditional uh, go-to smart home answer to smart locks if you don't want something that's on the cloud? Have you seen anything out there? So there are uh, Bluetooth ones, and they tend to be terrible. There's there's no mincing words. They they're just tend to be terrible because you walk up, and the delay or the low-strength Bluetooth connection to things makes them... Um, kind of obnoxious it's like hey watch this i can unlock my thing from the phone and friend pulls out phone pushes the button and we all stand there (laughs) and then three seconds later it's like okay the lock's turned we can go in like that's not the experience that i'd i'd like um you can also get zev wave ones i don't know if there are zigbee ones or not and then of course there are wi-fi ones okay any that you so so heard what you don't like have you seen any that you were like hey i really like this has really worked well mm, the only one that i would really trust is the z wave ones because they have the built-in uh security so um i believe it's called s2 but it doesn't really matter um part of the reason for that is is the additional security around the idea that you have a lock and that is yeah. the way into your house i personally would not put these on the front of my house Really? If I was going to put it anywhere, I would put it in my garage where it's already barred by two other do- doors. Okay. So, like, you know, you have your garage door and then you just, like, you now you're in. The, so you haven't, haven't had to get into the garage first and then you have the lock. Mm. Uh, it's just not – that's not a thing that I'm I'm particularly interested in. There's, there's a, multiple reasons. Like, if you 
if you set off an automation on accident, locked yourself out of the house or the battery dies. Okay. Because, and that's a problem because most people, when they get used to having a smart lock, they don't have a key store. Like they don't, they just don't carry the keys. Sure. If you're going to store the key under like the rock or the mat or something like that, like that, what's the point of having the smart lock? That's fair. Okay, so so I, I a quick search of Z-Wave locks shows that both Quickset and Schlage both make them. Based on my experience with these two companies, I would tell you that the Quickset locks typically have a little plastic uh, mechanism, a little plastic gear, and at least in North Dakota, what happens is moisture gets inside of there. We frequently get thirty below zero, so everything freezes. What happens when water freezes? It expands. What happens when it expands inside of plastic? It cracks, um, and it shreds those little plastic gears, and then you have to replace them. So I have experience with both the Quickset one and the Schleg one. And I've had better experience with the Schlage one. Now, when I say experience, I want to be very clear here. I don't have experience uh, automating any of these. This is just the actual locking mechanism themselves. I've used the little keypad locks. It, it appears from their site that they both offer a Z-Wave version of those same locks. Now, here's what I did at my house. And if somebody hired us to come do a door, this is what we would do. And it's the Axis A1001. Um, now, this is not a smart door lock insofar as you take your door lock off, you put the smart one on, you pair it to your network, and you're good. It, it doesn't work like that at all. Um, the Axis A1001 is a controller, and so it's a standalone box that you mount and either feed with PoE or feed it 12-volt uh, power, and then it just has uh, screw terminals on it, and so you decide what locking mechanism you're going to use. So you can use an electric deadbolt. You can use, uh, as the emailer pointed out, I've I've talked about electromagnetic locks in where you have a plate that goes on the door, an electromagnetic lock that mounts at the top, and you choose. Uh, or you could use like an electric strike that just the little the the little strike plate that goes on the door when the door closes it locks but then if power is provided to the stroke, strike the strike gets floppy and allows the the um, the door throw to pass by it w- uh, without interruption um, and so you can choose what locking mechanism you want to use you choose how you want to uh, deal with egress you know so in the case of a locking strike it would be when I turn the door handle it pulls the throw back and that allows me to bypass the electric strike in the case of an electromagnetic lock you either have a motion detector that detects when you walk up to the door and destroys the current to the magnet or you have a little button or a wave thing that you put your hand up and it automatically interrupts the current to the lock the advantage of doing that this way is so threefold it one is it is harder to uh, install so i guess I'll, I'll say that up front and it's more expensive um, but the advantages are one you can choose your locking mechanism independent from the access control portion of it so what what i mean by that is you can put an hid reader in it today because that is the standard and what people are using but tomorrow when you decide well i want encrypted uh key cards i brought the hid thing up once before and somebody said well can't you duplicate those well then you go to the ceos line which has an actual private public key pair and you want to implement that technology you just swap the reader on your house and now you can use the ceos reader or if you want to have biometrics so you have to swipe a key and put your thumbprint down something like that you have the opportunity to do that. Those readers also work by reading the native RFID tag on your phone, which my wife really likes because from her perspective, she doesn't have to download an app. She doesn't have to sign up for anything. She doesn't have to sign into anything. She literally just handed me her phone the first time I read it into the, the reader, enrolled it as a key, and now anytime she puts her phone up to the the, the, the door reader, it unlocks the door instantaneously. Um, so it, it's a much, much more flexible system. And then when you go to tying it into uh, Home Assistant, Steve, what were the little blue boxes we were talking about last week in the post show? Uh, those are the Shelly ones. Okay, the Shelly ones. So my latest thing, and I, I absolutely have a couple of these on order, and I'm, I'm going to be playing with these, is you tie the Shelly ones to the request to exit on the Access A1001 and tell it, hey, when these two pins short, open the door. And now you have Home Assistant access to the door. Um, the other thing is they make keyed switches, so you can have a, a vandal resistant keyed switch. So you can still ha- you can give like a physical key to you know your mother or your or your your in laws or your neighbors or whatever, and have a way to override the access control system. When it comes to security, I. I started down the path of like, well, I could defeat it this way, or I could defeat it that way, or I could cut the wires, I could drill this, and eventually what I got to is, yeah, or I could just take this brick and throw it through my living room window because it's a huge thing. Like, 
that's really the lowest point of, uh, you know, that's the lowest hanging fruit is just, you know, break a window and walk in. So who's going to fight with the front door when, you know, you smash a window if you're going to come in? The lock is there to keep the honest people honest. The Barrett 50 BMG behind the front door, that's that's there for my protection. Um, but so I, I, I would invite you to check out the A1001 if you look at it and say, yeah, this is just 750 bucks for the controller alone. Plus I got to buy the reader. Plus I got to buy a locking mechanism. And then I got to put it all together because it's all going to come as individual parts. And that's going to require fishing wire through a door frame and stuff like that. Like it's a lot. And I, and I get that. It is absolutely what's in my house. And so you specifically asked about. Uh, referencing the electromagnetic lock, so I will bring it back up. We installed one of them uh, last week for a church. They're very happy with it. We've got a couple of them out at a, at an engineering firm that runs their entire office, and we have another one that's going into a mall. Um, uh, and all different locking mechanisms, but all running off of that Axis A1001. And so uh, completely web-based, no Windows software required, uh, ties directly into the Synology disk station if you have the surveillance station package. So when somebody swipes a key, it can automatically pull the, f- the, 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 the photo up or the, the video up of the door, which brings me to my next suggestion, the smart doorbell. So if you're looking for a smart doorbell, I don't like any of the ones that are, are basically Chinese branded. And as we're going to see later on in the episode, uh, I would stay away from the Amazon rings of the world because they are directly feeding that video feed to your local police department. But Axis makes a flush mount. Well, they make a flush mount and they make a, a non-flush mount, but uh, makes a uh, door camera. And what I like about it is it does, it's actually two devices in one. One is a plain old IP, uh, 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 ONVIF compliant camera, IP camera. And the second part is a generic SIP device. So when somebody pushes the button on the doorbell, it rings a designated SIP line or a designated ring group. So in our house, that looks something like it rings my wife's phone. If she doesn't answer after two rings, it rings all the phones in the house. If that doesn't answer, it goes to my cell phone. And so that has saved us numerous times where I'll answer the phone. Hello? Hey, this is Jim with the blah, 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 and we're here to fix the yada, yada. You called and we had somebody early, so they're there now early. Okay, no problem. Hold on. And you push six and the door opens. And hey, go on in. Um, so that is the most privacy respecting way. Again, there's no cloud subscription. There is nothing, no metadata is being sent. It's just a local thing that sends an ONVIF stream, RTSP really stream, uh, to your NVR and you can pull it up on your phone. You can pull it up on your camera. You can use completely open source software if you want. You can use Synology Disk, disk Station if you want. And then it combines that with the phone and the access control so that you can unlock the door with, uh, with the, with the, um, with the phone. Um, so, that's the direction that I went. It's kind of an expensive route to go, and it's also, again, requires a lot of do-it-yourself installation. Um, but the good news about it is, one, there's plenty of people online that are doing that, and there's plenty of pictures to help you through. And the second thing is, there's a number of different uh, options available. So if you want to have, like, you're replacing your front door, like if you're putting in a really nice front door, maybe you want to think about how you would put, uh, you know, electrically controlled deadbolts in there so that you can't see them and stuff like that. And any locksmith would be able to help you with that if you're if you get in over your head and you're looking for someone uh, to help. And we've absolutely done that on installs before. Just said, hey, above our above our pay grade, have a have a locksmith come in. Our fourth email comes in from Chris. Chris writes in and says, hi, no one, Steve. I'm a uh, listener from episode one, actually from even before that, when you were still a part of JB. The main reason I emailed you is I have thought of a solution that you wouldn't think of right away, but combining a few ideas, it might be a good solution. What about combining Apache Guacamole with YGG Drizzle Network? In case you've never heard of YGG Drizzle, it's a new mesh network t- uh, technology similar to what Tailscale provides, and they even mention better performance over their solution compared to OpenVPN and SSH forwarding. You can use our YGG uh, Raysail for static IPv6 addresses and Apache guacamole to store all of the connections. I haven't tried it, but the logic pans out as far as I know. Would this be a solution or could this work for you? Kind regards, Chris. So, Steve, what do you think about this for remote desktop? I mean, you've got the overhead of the encryption and that is difficult at best of times. Mm. I don't know that this buys you anything more than, say... Um, any other VPN or or even like SSH uh, shuttle, like SSH shuttle or any of the lighter weight things, because you're still having to send all your traffic over the encrypted network, and that's going to slow things down when you're talking about 
um, dealing with graphics. Graphics mm. are already troublesome at the at the best of times. So I'm not exactly sure what this might get you over Mesh Central or any of the other type um, um, VPN substitutes out there. Okay. Yeah, I it, it, it uh, kudos to Chris for thinking about a creative way to combine some of these open source technologies. I uh it's so funny when I started the whole remote desktop venture and I started looking into other things I thought, well, I've pretty much seen everything open source has to offer and it seems like every time I turn around something else has come out. But I I appreciate you writing in Chris. Again, your feedback is welcome. Live at asknoahshow.com. We want to hear from you, your questions, your thoughts, your comments on previous episodes and what you see and are working with in the open source community. Let us know right in live at asknoahshow.com. Back with us after a two weeks hiatus. It is JT on Linux Newswire Newsroom with the latest Linux headlines. Here he is. From the Linux Newswire Newsroom, this is the Week in Review with JT. The Debian-based distribution MX Linux has announced the release of version 21.2 that has been called Wildflower. The Tails project has released version 5.4. The Wii U emulator, Simu 2.0, is out and is open source and has Linux support. Linux-first AI image upscaler, called Upscale, has released its first version. LibVF.io, vGPU, and SRIOV on consumer GPUs has added support for Virtual GPU Machine, GVM. The LXQT team has announced support for Sway and Wayland. A new feature in Linux 6.1 will allow users to print the socket and core which are likely responsible when a segmentation fault occurs. This should allow users to spot if a particular CPU core is routinely causing problems. Red Hat Enterprise Linux 10 is eliminating GTK2 support. The Linux Foundation has launched a free online course last week called Fundamentals of Quantum Computing in partnership with the World Bank. A computer science student with a passion for electronics and photography has created a 3D-printed 12-megapixel camera powered by Linux and a Raspberry Pi computer system named the PiCam. Capital One has joined the Open Source Security Foundation. An object storage platform, MinIO, has accused enterprise cloud and storage provider Nutanix of breaking its open source license. Thanks, JT. You'll hear his news reports every week towards the middle of the show. We try to have those available uh, to you, but it's a labor of love. So happy to have JT back, and uh, thank you for putting that together for us. Our pick of the week this week is T2Bot.io. So if you're not familiar with T2Bot, it is a bridging service based on Matrix. And Travis R. is kind of the guy, it's kind of his hobby project. He works full-time uh, for Matrix and for Element and works, obviously, as you might expect, in their in their bridging uh on their bridging team, but he has kind of started this this little side hobby project for doing hosting public bridges, and they have just passed the one million known rooms. Uh, that is ten million bridged users uh, at the at the at the time of this writing. And what's interesting about that is the vast majority of those are people that are participating either from Discord or from Telegram that are bridged through Matrix through T2Bot's uh, free service. Uh, with about 500,000 of those being active each month. So, uh, of the 10 million, 8 million of those are from Telegram, are from Telegram, covering about 11% of Telegram's total user base. Um, the remaining 2 million are Discord users, roughly half a percent of Discord's total user base. And so for perspective, T2Bot has about 683 million events in the database, bridging between 30 to 40,000 people a day. And what is interesting, so there's, there's a couple of things that are interesting to me about this. The, the, the first thing is that whole idea of backwards compatibility. As people are uh, able to have conversations and able to uh, discuss in a different way, um, this it provides a tool for doing that. It provides a tool for connecting two people that otherwise wouldn't have been connected together. And we absolutely saw this at Southeast Linux Fest. You had a group of people that wanted to be on IRC. You had a group of people that wanted to be on Telegram. You had a group of people that wanted to be on Matrix. You had a group of people that... And, and what ended up happening was all of those rooms bled together and there was an amazing amount of discourse but interoperable between all of these platforms because they were participating in allowing people to 
connect these platforms together. And so T2Bot has done that for free. There are also paid services now that are available to do that. And so you can either pay for a uh, a paid hosted version of Synapse from uh, Matrix Services, or you can go with something called Beeper.com. And Beeper is a is basically bridging services for normal people, where you pay a flat fee a month, you download their app, you put in your Facebook and Twitter and and you know Instagram and and IRC and Telegram. SMS, all of the things, put it into Beeper and it just delivers them all in one app for you. And it's all working on Matrix under the, underneath. It's all open source. You can certainly host it yourself. And so they have links to doing that. So we just wanted to call that out as as, as our pick of the week this week. because it's, it's cool. They passed one million people that are now bridged. Our gadget of the week is the Pine 64 Risk 5. They're calling it the Star 64. It is the tr- first true Risk Five uh, SBC from Pine 64. So, quote, the Star 64 comes with a Star 5 JH701110 64-bit CPU sporting a SI5 FU740 cores clocked at 1.5 gigahertz. The SOC is equipped with a BXE432 from Imagination Technologies, which is said to be a solid mid-range GPU. Star 64 will be available in two configurations, one with a 4 gigabyte of RAM and one with 8 gigabytes of RAM, similar to the Quartz 64. Both hardware versions include USB 3.0, it includes a PCI slot, as well as two native gigabit Ethernet NICs. The I.O. arrangement is very similar to what you've come to expect from the Model A boards, along with the long edges you'll find PCI and the GPIO on the other. In one of the other boards, you'll find a digital video output double-stacked with gigabit Ethernet and, get this, a 12-volt barrel plug. On the opposite side... Excuse me. On the opposite side, you'll find three USB 2.0, one USB 3.0, and an audio jack as well as power button. There's also uh, two U.FL ports for antennas, one for Bluetooth and the other for Wi-Fi. Includes, obviously, onboard Wi-Fi and Bluetooth. So what is interesting to me about this board is a couple things. First of all, this is easily going to be the most cost-effective way to get into RISC-V. So if you're wanting to develop on RISC-V, you're wanting to play with RISC-V, this is going to be fantastic. As far as practical uses for the Star 64 specifically, the fact that it has that little 12-volt port on it is of extreme interest to me for two reasons. One is it's going to enable me to put it in my car, put it into my RV, keep it with me on regular 12-volt power supplies, which is what I'm already using for ham radio and such, uh, opens it up to being powered with solar as opposed to having to use a bunch of step-down stuff. So I like that. The other thing is... Because of the SOC's low thermals and idle power, they're saying it's going to make a really great NAS. And having a tiny little single board NAS computer that uh, would be that would be really cool. I don't know that I'm you know you're not going to go replacing you know your 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 uh, your, your corporation's um, you know file server, but for having a little server to take with you or have it on the go or maybe when you're traveling or going to hotels or something like that, man, I could see this being really cool. Uh, both Debian and Fedora have committed to porting uh, to the, the, the Star 5's JH7110 uh, platform, um, which is, of course, great news. And they're hoping that other OSs are going to follow specifically, maybe on the BSD side, to get some NASI type stuff. I'm not calling anyone out by names, but we'll see. Uh, so very, very cool little board. Steve, I guess I'll ask, have you had any interest or do you have any interest in RISC-V? Is it something that you kind of watch from the periphery or not so much? Yeah, I, I kind of keep my pulse on things, but mm-hmm. right now they're largely for people that are doing heavy development. And if I wanted mm. to have something, I want to do something with it. And I feel like the lack of cross-compiling applications would be a hindrance for some of the stuff that I might want to play around with. Yeah, I I, I got to play with the, I believe it was the... Hmm. I can't think of the name of the company right off the top of my head, but the the guys that make the um, the like regular desktop uh, Risk Five, Black Talon maybe or something like that, um, and they I, I I sat down and I started using it and they had Fedora installed on it and I thought okay this is pretty cool, and then I asked them like I don't know, what did it take to get this running and they said no it's just you just we just took it out of the box and installed Linux on it. And a lot of the software is already there. A lot of the software is already available and you can you just install and, 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 and run. So that's of interest to me. I also uh, my impression of Risk Five as it relates to ARM is ARM is very horizontally scalable. Um 
Risk Five seems like it can be more vertically scalable, where you can do more on every one computer. Am I? Am I? Do I understand that correctly? I'm not exactly sure. Like Risk Five's um, big thing is is kind of similar to ARM in terms of being able to have feature gates inside of like what you pay for. So um, you can you can pay to have different features enabled or disabled on the chip. And even though it's open source, that that's kind of, or I guess it's open source the right terminology yeah. when you're talking about hardware. I think so. That's yeah. that's how they'd brand it as an open source. Um, that that doesn't mean that all of the bits for RISC-V are going to work necessarily mm. because because it is just kind of the framework for the the board itself and not necessarily all of the things that might plug into it in the future. So it's it's of interest to me, but I also don't have a ton of like Raspberry Pis kicking around. I have one yeah. for my Christmas tree. Okay. And and you know, that's the only one that is actually in production. I have a couple others kind of kicking around that I've just never found solid uses for because I'm more likely to go grab like an ESP thirty two and like, you know, purpose built board and build my own kind of like widgets. Sure. Otherwise I find mm, I find that they're just, they're lacking something. Like if it's a compute, like I can wrap my mind around, I spent $8 on this single purpose thing and it's going to live to do a job. Yep. But I can't quite wrap my mind around a Raspberry Pi. Is Like, is it a computer? If it's a computer, it's kind of a poor showing. Yeah. Is, is it a single use thing? Well, it's kind of overkill for that. Like I, I'm still haven't, and the risk five falls in the same category. Okay, so what is it really doing? Where is the huge appeal? Why wouldn't I just use x86 or why wouldn't I just use ARM? Yeah, exactly. Like, okay, so we're talking about you've got a maximum of eight gigs of RAM, which is good. But if you're doing like a purpose built thing, what am I doing with this? Like, if I'm doing something complicated ish, I might reach for an Arduino, for example, mm -hmm. like with the with the established um, community around that. Whereas with a Pi or one of these risk things, they're slightly bigger, and I guess I could do it with this, but why? That that's the question I always come back to. Like I have to have, even though I'm a tinker, it, it's this weird dichotomy. I love to rip things apart and like actually tinker with the actual hardware. Uh -huh. But then when I get something like a Raspberry Pi, I'm just like, why? What like what is the point of this? When I could do this with this little chip over here and that thing here. Um. And the Raspberry Pi costs me more, and it's a lot harder to say power, for example. That's fair. I, I suppose the I suppose the big thing is if you're doing like AI stuff. I suppose that's really where people want, you know, they they probably want a bunch of them, and then they want a custom write software to take advantage of. Hey, we can tweak this to do this. Yeah, and I could I can absolutely see that. Like I know the Nvidia boards were were popular for similar reasons, but that. I don't have an, a use case for that. So, yeah, that's fair. Well, I'm going to continue to watch uh, Risk 5 and Open Power and don't give a shout out to those guys too. Um continue to watch all of that and continue to keep my eye on all of it as I find it continually interesting. Um but congratulations to Pine 64. Fantastic another product and without a doubt will be the kind of thing that I will spend my money on absolutely expecting to get more uh, out of it than what I actually put in financially. I just think they do a really good job delivering on value. Uh, kernel 6.1 is upon us. So Linux users are going to have a new way to identify faulty CPUs. So this is a new feature that allows users to print uh, the socket and core, which are likely responsible during a seg fault. And that is going to allow users to spot if a particular CPU core is routinely causing problems. Now, they go on to... Uh, specify that this really isn't like a, a, a troubleshooting thing or a development thing where, wherein as I can say, I wonder if the CPU is bad and I can use this flag to, uh, you know, put the exception trace on and, oh yeah, there it is. It's, it's bad. It's really more along the lines of if you're running a bunch of servers in production and you have a lot of them and you're, you're, and you, you turn this flag on, you will be able to catch most of the time when something isn't working. So the way they put it, um, they acknowledge that the feature is quote unquote not perfect but it 
uh, the task might, and the, the the reason for that is the task may get rescheduled on another CPU in between when the fault hit and when the message is printed. So if you're a developer that's currently using a Linux distro for demanding high performance use cases, you're unlikely to be considering using this feature in isolation. You'll probably want to employ some common CPU stress testers such as Prime95 or ADS64. However, they did say that, quote unquote, in practice, this has been, quote unquote, good enough to help people identify several bad CPU cores when you're using it at scale. And then above and beyond that, it's worth noting that uh, the 6.0 release of the kernel, while it's being, a lot of people are saying, hey, there's not a whole lot of stuff in here. That's true. There's no like huge sweeping changes, but there are driver updates. There are uh, updated uh, uh, stuff for the GPU, updated stuff for networking and sound. And so the experience that you have is likely to be better and one of the newer GPU versions. And if you are a person or a company that is running a number of servers, uh, this new CPU flag is going to be fantastic. Steve, I would imagine this plays somewhat into your day job, having the ability, I mean, looking and saying, hey, are these are these cores dumping? And if so, why? Yeah, I could definitely see this being quite handy. I saw the in the notes here, we're talking about basically, it's basically like a, a print function. And yeah. so, like you said, it's it's not necessarily debugging, but it it's debugging just like you debug your code by making a bunch of print statements. Mm. You know, gives you some interesting ideas. Um, as soon as I I started reading about it, I'm nodding along, like, "Yep, I can absolutely see this." <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Where where I would put that into practice? Yep. The EFF has published a a, a scathing article on uh, drones and privacy. And so in 2016, when drones started to become more and more popular, the FAA published rules uh, as Part 107, later uh, the remote ID, which uh, basically governed small drones. And the idea here is that the operator that was flying the drone had to be within what they called a visual line of sight of the drone. That is to say that you needed to be able to see the drone with your eyes, even though you were controlling it from the joystick, because they knew that if you can attach cameras and stream the cameras back to the controller, have VR goggles or all the all the different ways that you can fly a drone, like somebody might fly the drone further than when they could see it. And so the FAA says, hey, you have to be able to see this drone. So as time has gone on, obviously more and more commercial operations have uh, turned to drones. Everything from there's a golf course in Grand Forks that does delivery with drones. So if you're on the golf course, you're swinging the thing, say, I want, you know, a beer or I want a hamburger. You put in the thing and a little drone flies out and, and drops it off to you. I mean, it's kind of crazy. And all of these ventures obviously violate this concept of of uh, of uh, visual line of sight. If it's coming out from like you know a snack shack and flying out in the course, can you actually see that drone? And so they these these uh, commercial entities are pushing back to say, hey FAA, you really might want to reconsider this because there are some there are a number of different commercial operations that we could do, and if we remove this restriction or allowed some exemptions, then how would we do that? Uh, and that could be really beneficial for a lot of places, and. So the FAA says, okay, we're going to do that. And so what the FAA does is they form something called an ARC. And an ARC is an advisory group that helped the FAA make recommendations on rulemaking. And it's a group of experts that sit down for a period of time to discuss all of the possible aspects on any particular topic. And so that can cover everything from operation to certification to maintenance. How do we have people uh, report in on this stuff? And then they take those suggestions, the FAA considers them, and then they finally write the rules. So... Fast forward to June 2021, the FAA convened an ARC on uh, base uh, on on uh, visual line of sight, and the EFF, the American Civil Liberties Union, and the Electronic Privacy Information Center uh, were some of the organizations that were invited to participate in this. And so the committee got together and they met, and the EFF and the ACLU and Epic are looking around and going, "Man, there's an awful lot of industry people in this room right now." And so then they started going through the discussions and they get into the discussions and the industry is saying, yeah, you know what we should do? We should have recommendations for people to have privacy. I, th I think that's good. But we should make them like suggestions, you know, like they can voluntarily participate in best privacy practices. And then we give those to the people that are flying the drones. Well, um, what do we do when they don't do that? Uh, how do we protect people like? What are the actual, what's the binding agreement? Oh, there isn't any. Okay. So if I'm a drone operator, what uh, what stops me from wanting to drive, fly my drone over people's houses and take pictures of people sunbathing? Well, there's not really an incentive for that either. Okay. So we're just going to kind of politely ask people to not be jerks and then hope for the best? And they said, yeah. 
Okay. Well, how about like being transparent to the public so they can understand like, hey, maybe there's a thing like they say I am going to fly my drone in this area or I'm going to fly around in this pattern or it's going to be in the, you know this part of the city for this part of the time or here's things that are open. Could we have some transparency? But nope, we can't have any of that. Uh, industry doesn't want to do that. Okay. So the EFS, EFF politely bowed out and said, listen, there's essentially nobody wants to talk about the negative interaction of drones. Nobody wants to participate with community engagement and actually tell people of what's going on. And we don't want to have any binding protection for people. And I'll quote here directly from the article. Indeed, when we raise the topic of privacy, some industry groups push back to the point that they didn't even want to have a conversation on privacy. So the EFF saw the writing on the wall and said, there's no point in having an arc if we're invited here to participate in this thing and you want our, our the information on privacy or our opinion on privacy. And our opinion is this is a terrible idea. And you don't want to do anything about it. And so they published uh, their paper, which you can read. We'll have linked for you in the show notes um, that uh, that basically goes through and says, here's why what the FAA is doing is a bad idea, is a poor choice and why this is not a good idea and why we shouldn't be doing this. Um, I'm going to ask I'm going to ask it this way, Steve. You're a very privacy conscious person, and you're also a person that likes to spend time in your backyard. What would be your reaction if you were out gardening and and taking care of your year long, you know, uh, yard transformation, and all of a sudden you hear what sounds like a swarm of bees, and it's uh, some dude with a with a drone. He's nowhere in sight, but his drone is right over your property. I'd probably get my bow. Yeah. So I was gonna I was gonna go shotgun, but you both probably quieter and doesn't carry the charge of just discharging a firearm in city limits. So you probably have one up on me there. Well, I don't have a shotgun, so but I think that if they're not going to make respection of, the respecting of privacy um, a focus, then we mm. should be able to take them down. You're flying over my property, just like a trespassing yep. thing. Like your drone is trespassing, I'm taking it down. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and the, the, I you know I. The, the EFF, there's two portions of it. There's the, the paper that the EFF wrote that they submitted as a, essentially a why the FAA shouldn't do this. And then there's the actual article that kind of puts it into human readable terms. One of the things, um, that they put in there is people put up fences to keep people from looking into their private lives. When you have a drone, like, how do you prevent that? What, I mean, what are you going to do? Build a, build a huge roof over, you know, your entire yard. So, I mean, now we don't get sun or sky because private, Industry will fly drones everywhere. I think it's kind of ridiculous. I think I, I it's terrible. Like I, so there was a, um, I'll, I'll call it a political stunt in Canada where a guy figured out how to uh, launch an electrified net, and so he invited <laughs> he invited his MP out, and his MP actually shot a drone down with this this thing. And okay. I, like I said, it's a political stunt, but the fact that somebody actually took the time to. Uh, figure out how to do this like completely fly fried this drone that was flying over his property yeah oh that's fantastic so the eff also released something called the atlas of surveillance now truthfully this came back out in july um but it ties so closely into this drone thing that i wanted to bring it up tonight so the eff in partnership with reynolds school of journalism at the university of nevada reno launched today the largest ever collection of searchable data on police use of surveillance technologies created as a tool for the public to learn about facial recognition drones license plate readers and other devices law enforcement agencies use acquiring to spy on our communities. So they're calling it the Atlas of uh, Surveillance, and it is a database containing several thousand data points on over 3,000 cities for local police departments and sheriff's offices nationwide, allowing citizens, journalists, and academics to review details about the technology that police are deploying and providing a resource to check on what devices and systems have been purchased locally. So when you go to atlasofsurveillance.org, you can search for information by clicking on a region, on a town, on a city. Uh, you could type in like Minneapolis or Tampa or uh, Tucson. You can also perform text searches and just type in your city. And it's really neat. It pulls up all of the count. Like, so when I put in my state, it pulls up all of the cities and counties in the state. And then using crowdsourcing technology and data journalism over the last 18 months, the Atlas of Surveillance documents show the increase in unchecked high-tech tools that collect biometric records, photos, videos of people in their communities, and then track them via cell phones to purportedly predict where crimes are going to be committed. I mean, this is some real – what's the name of that movie, that, that Tom Cruise movie that had uh, – um, where he was a, he was a cop – 
and then he yeah, would, and solved, minority report. Yeah, minority. I mean, that, that's straight up what this is. They've been trying to predict. So I put in just for the funsies of it, Steve. I put in North Dakota, and I found out that the University of North Dakota Police Department has been using drones since 2012 uh, throughout the Northeast region of the UAS unit. So that would totally be my state. And they're using that for, I mean, there's a whole bunch of entries of North Dakota. A number, you know, the number one thing I'm seeing, uh, body cams, which are not surprising to me because people, you, you want to know who to blame. Blame the citizenry who complained about police not having body cams for police having body cams. That wasn't their choice. They did that to protect themselves from, law, you know, uh, lawsuits. Uh, but the second one is the ring program, the ring program with Amazon, uh, all these police departments that are signing up and getting access to this. Now, every law enforcement agency that signs up and has access to that is published on uh, on this on this on this atlas on on this atlas of surveillance. And so I put in South Dakota, Steve, to see what uh, what your state's been up to. So the South Dakota Fusion Center is one of 79 fusion centers in the United States. It's operated by local and state inf- enforcement officers in partnership with the U.S. Department of Homeland Security. A fusion center serves as a command center for gathering, analyzing, and disseminating intelligence and other public safety information. So I'm not exactly sure what to take of that, but it kind of sounds like it's a place where they're just sucking up data and sharing it with the government. I mean, it's possible, but on the upside, that's the only thing that you could really find in South Dakota because <laughs> drones, facial recognition, blah, 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 all the cell site simulator, none of that exists here yet. That's right. We'll, we'll stress yet. Um, so I'll give a little to get a lot on this one. Yeah, yeah. But so, th- so this is so cool. Th- so th- part of it is interesting to me because I, I absolutely believe, particularly if you're spending tax dollars on something, people have a right to know what uh, law enforcement agencies are doing. Again, the EFF gets bent out of shape over body cams. I would tell you that the police were not the people that pushed for body cams. It was the citizenry that said, well, we want our police held accountable. Now all the cameras are pointed at citizens. Now all of a sudden it becomes a privacy infringement. Come on. You got to pick one side or the other. And I, and I wouldn't have been one of the people saying, hey, we have to have body cams. We have to have body cams. I, would, I mean, I don't know that I particularly care for them either, but I don't think they're as egregious as some of the things like the automatic license plate readers. So Fargo, a city 70 miles south of Grand Forks, spent uh, like $70,000 on these automatic license plate readers and equipped them on all of the police cars. So you've done nothing wrong. You're not subject to search. You are simply just driving in a vehicle down a road. And by nature of doing that, you're obeying the stop, you're obeying the traffic laws, you have your seatbelt on. But because you had the misfortune of driving past a law enforcement officer, your license plate was taken a picture of, the location was recorded, you were searched to see if you had any warrants or if there was any problems with the vehicle and then likely you just carried on with your life and didn't know that that interaction with law enforcement even happened. I find that to be a little bit problematic. I find the fact that the University of North Dakota, that police department is using drones to quote unquote increase campus security is highly alarming to me. And a massive thank you and a huge amount of credit goes to the EFF for putting this stuff together because I, uh, I, when we have tools like this, it enables us to have a more intelligent conversation. Steve, I cannot describe to you the number of times I've had a discussion with somebody and I've mentioned the ring program and people, they kind of roll their eyes like that doesn't happen. That that doesn't happen. And then you'll show them a news article or two and like, OK, but it's just the police. I mean, they're, they're probably using it for something good. Right. Go through that database. Look at how many rinky dink police departments have access to all of the ring cameras and can go look at footage without a warrant. Without any due process, just they want to have a Pixies, they can have a Pixies. If you don't find that problematic, well, if you don't find that problematic, you and I don't hang out much. I think that's, I can leave it there. Hey, the music in our ears, it means we're out of time. A huge thank you for joining us again. The show is about answering your questions and serving you. So help us understand how to do that. Send us an email live at asknoahshow.com. What things do you like? What questions do you have? How can we help you in your open source journey? Hey, the show continues throughout the week. You can follow us on Twitter. He's at Linux Ovens. I'm at Colonel Linux. The show at Ask Noah Show. We're back next Tuesday at 6 p.m. Central at asknoahshow.com. Have a good week. <laughs>